It is a pleasure to get to be with you here today as we continue our study through the Gospel of Mark. As we continue it this week, we are in a much-anticipated text, the Olivet Discourse, found throughout the 13th chapter of Mark. And today we'll begin that chapter by going through verses 1 through 13. Mark 13, verses 1 through 13. As we begin, I'd like to read a portion of this text to set up our discussion. So, if you would, I know you just sat down, but if you would, out of reverence for the Word of God, stand once more with me. And let us begin our time by reading Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? This is the word of God. You may be seated once again. Have any of you ever had the challenge of trying to explain the concept of waiting to a toddler? The laughter tells me a number of us have. If you have never done this, it is good to know that it is quite a challenging task. Uh, maybe the toddler or young child is, is waiting for a friend's birthday party that's not happening that particular day, or they might be waiting for their own birthday party next month, or perhaps it's a trip you have scheduled to visit distant relatives. Regardless of the event, if it is not happening today or at least tomorrow, that young child will have an impossibly difficult time understanding what it means to wait for the event. Their frustration and their difficulty is not simply a, a lack of patience, although that certainly can come into play. But we have to understand that it is difficult for a toddler to understand the concept of waiting because they can't really understand the, the abstract concept of time itself. See, so that young child being told that the event they are waiting for is not happening today is in essence being told it's never going to happen. Just forget about it. Because they can't imagine that void between now and later. They struggle to understand why they would ever possibly have to wait. We who are parents or any adult who works with a young child then faces the difficult task of, of maybe laying out a calendar before them, counting out the days, trying to explain to them what will be necessary to happen between now and then. But we understand as adults that regardless of how clear we might be, children will be unable to fully grasp it. And as such, they will always feel that tension, that frustration. And although it's impossible for us as adults to fully enter into the mind of a child, we certainly can empathize with their frustration, can't we? For regardless of how old we are or how, what, how good of a grasp we have of the concept of time, that, that practice of waiting is always unnatural. It is always filled with anxiety. Whether it's waiting for an event that we are excited to enjoy, a trip we have been saving up for years to go on, or perhaps even more powerfully, if it's waiting to escape out of your most recently dark chapter of your life, waiting to escape that suffering, regardless of how much we might understand about the calendar, in the midst of waiting, time can feel as if it is standing still. 
And it is easy to become overwhelmed with anxiety and frustration, asking the question, when is it actually going to arrive? This question is a universal question asked by all of us, and it is particularly relevant to the Christian life. For all of us, as Christians, are given these grand promises from Christ. There are magnificent promises of future glory, future heaven, future joy. There are also future promises, as we'll get into the text today, of destruction, of of chaos. But since we cannot place those points on a calendar, it is easy to, to become frustrated. And it's easy to start maybe even doubting those events and whether or not they will happen. And so as we enter into the text of Mark 13 today, it is helpful to see that we're given this this very discussion, that we see the disciples coming to that same point of confusion and asking that universal question of when will this end come? As we explore this text, then, my hope is that we can not only empathize with the disciples, although that is part of it, but that we can also hear in the words of Christ, not some mysterious puzzle that we are meant to piece together to try to figure out the future, but that we can understand a significantly helpful and encouraging message from Christ. A message that speaks of a definite end that lies ahead of us, but a message that also speaks of our present struggles and our present realities. And in the midst of that struggle, as well as in the midst of that future, we can hear also the universal call that's given to every single one of us. As we begin our time then and begin by unpacking the question of the disciples, let us once again turn to Christ in prayer, and we will begin digging into our passage today. If you would, bow your heads in prayer with me. Father... We do thank you for today. We thank you for those songs that we just sang, Lord. We thank you for those glorious words, those glorious reminders of the future, the glorious reminders of the cross of Jesus Christ through which we are saved. We thank you for the opportunity to reflect even more deeply on that cross, on that sacrifice, on the resurrection of our Lord and Savior as we took part in communion. We thank you for that physical act that gives us that experience, that gives us that a taste of the glory that is yet to come. But God, in the midst of singing our songs, in the midst of enjoying company here at church, we recognize we still live in a world that is oftentimes seemingly chaotic. And in the midst of the daily news cycles, in the midst of our daily frustrations, it is easy to become overwhelmed with anxiety. And it is easy to hear the promises of heaven as if they are impossibly distant from us, impossible to grasp. But God, as we come to the text today, Lord, I pray that we might not only empathize with the disciples, Lord, not not only might we cry out just as they ask Jesus here, but might we be encouraged by the message that your son, Jesus Christ, gives us. Might we be reminded of the sober reality of the future that lies ahead, but might we also be reminded of our daily calling as your disciples, God. Might we respond then not with anxiety, not with fear, but with joy, with appreciation, God, and with obedience. At this time, God, as always, we ask that you remove all distractions from us, God. Might we be entirely focused upon you, upon your word. Might all of this be done to your glory today, we pray. All in Jesus Christ's name, amen. As we look at our text today, we will see the question asked by the disciples, followed by the answer of Christ, the already not yet answer, and finally, we'll speak to our ongoing calling. We begin, though, with this opening section of the questions. Again, if you've not been with us, or if you have been with us, rather, you understand we find ourselves in a a very important moment in the ministry of Christ. For a number of years, 
the disciples of Jesus have heard Jesus proclaim that the, the kingdom has arrived. These disciples have witnessed with their own eyes great miracles. They have seen him heal people with various diseases. They have seen people have been raised from the dead. They have heard Jesus teach with great authority. They have heard Jesus make magnificent promises regarding the glory that is to come. And most recently, in Mark 12, they have seen Jesus come head-to-head with a variety of religious leaders as he confronts them and as he points out their hypocrisy. Things in the ministry of Christ then are clearly ramping up. Here they are in the temple. Here they are in the great city of Jerusalem. And it would, it would seem as if the end, the, the promise of Christ, the fulfillment of the kingdom perhaps is, is finally here. It's finally going to happen. And so as they come out of the temple, with all of that in their minds, they make this basic observation of the grandeur of it all. And again, quoting the disciples there, we read one says, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. The disciple here is not saying anything that shocking for the temple, as well as the city, was in fact a magnificent place. By all historical accounts, the temple was an amazing sight to behold. In fact, the ancient historian Josephus describes the Temple Mount as this. From the top of the Mount of Olives, the whiteness of the stone, its gold trim and gold cover roof of the temple sanctuary made the Temple Mount look like a snow-capped mountain, and it was a blinding sight to behold. The disciples stood in, in the midst of that magnificent sight, in the midst of that structure that that really stood for the entire institution that they were raised in, that stood for the covenant of God. And it would then make sense for them that this would be the place that God sets up his kingdom, that Jesus sits on the throne. And yet in response to this basic observation, we have this shocking response of Jesus. For in response to the disciples saying, look at this, Jesus. Look how magnificent this is. Jesus simply points at it and says, do you see these buildings? It's all going to be torn down. It's all going to be destroyed. And you can understand why, as the text moves on, that the disciples are are flabbergasted by this, this concept. For how could all of this come down, Jesus? How could all of this happen? If you say the kingdom is coming, why then do you speak of this utter destruction? For the disciples in this moment, the present reality in which they sit seems to contradict or be contradicted by this clear promise of Christ. And so the promise or the, the response of the disciples is quite naturally, oh, okay, Jesus, what? When is this going to happen? What are the signs of this destruction? They are trying to wrap their minds around this promised destruction that Jesus declares. We can certainly appreciate the confusion of the disciples. And we have to assume, and we can easily guess, that that frustration and that confusion would have not just been shared by the disciples, but it would have been the same confusion that the early church shared as well. For consider the original readers of this text. In that original church, or in that original audience, they would have received the book of Mark in the the early to mid-60s. By the time a lot of readers would have received this book, they would have been eyewitnesses to the ongoing Jewish-Roman war in which Jerusalem is being utterly slaughtered and destroyed. As believers in that early church then, hearing the promises of the kingdom and hearing promises of grandeur and glory and yet also seeing this destruction, the question, of course, would remain, okay, what is going on, Jesus? When 
when was that promise going to happen? Is this it? Is this the end of destruction? Is, is this what will usher in the kingdom? That struggle, no doubt, continued on throughout church history. And the fact remains is that we share the same frustration and the same confusion to A, that, that question of when will the end come is just as appropriate to ask today as believers as it was back in A.D. 60 or A.D. 70. For we still stand as Christians today knowing the great promises of Christ, knowing that a supposed point in time of destruction is going to come, which will be followed by glory, and we look around at the world around us and we say, well, there seems to be a lot of destruction, and yet nothing changes. History chugs on, the world moves on, and we are left as Christians understandably asking, when, Jesus? When are you actually going to fulfill this promise that you've given us? Is this the destruction that you told us to prepare for? Or is there something more coming? The question of when is a question then that has been stirring in the hearts of God's people from the very beginning. You hear it in the Old Testament prophets. You see it in the hearts of the disciples. You see it in the the words of the early church. And we speak these same words today. How long, God? How long must we face this world? How bad could things possibly get before the end actually arrives? This, in essence, is the question the disciples ask. When is this happening, God? In verse 4, in essence, what are the signs? How can we possibly be prepared? That is the question set before us, and I trust it's a question that all of us as believers have asked at some point in time. And as we move forward, no doubt many of us would hope to find Jesus answering the question in a pretty forthright manner, meaning it would be nice if Jesus said, good question, disciples. The end is going to come on Tuesday, December the 16th. I don't know if that's an actual date of this year, but it's going to happen on this such and such a date. This person will do this, that person will do that, and on this date it's going to come to an end. We would love to hear that. But that's not the answer that Jesus gives, at least not that clearly. Instead, the answer that Jesus gives in verses, beginning in verse 5 and really all the way through the end of chapter 13, his answer speaks in a, of a more nuanced future, and he describes this indestruction really in two steps, as we'll see. He describes this future ending as an event that is both already happening, already here, and yet also not yet fully realized. In other words, Jesus speaks of the coming ending the same way he speaks of the kingdom throughout his ministry. There is always this already but not yet aspect to that kingdom as well as to the ending that Jesus is warning his believers about. And so as we read these verses, we will see both those concepts at work, the already and the not yet. With that in mind, let us consider the answer of Jesus Christ in verses 5 through 13 after which time we'll observe the already and then the not yet. Mark 13, picking it back in verse 5, Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must first take place, but that is not yet the end. For a nation will rise up against a nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, 
You will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. As I already mentioned, in these words of Jesus, we are not given so much a number of signs to look for, so much as we're given a a number of non-signs. In other words, in response to the question of when is this going to happen, when is the end going to come, Jesus begins by telling the disciples, well, here's a bunch of stuff that's going to happen, but it's not the end quite yet. He describes these in a somewhat poetic manner by describing them as the beginning of birth pains. This early pain in the process of labor and delivering a child. And as we read through verses 5 to 13, we see a number of these concepts that I think can rightly be interpreted as birth pangs. That is, those things that are already present, that the church has always experienced. The first of these birth pangs that he mentions in verses 5 and 6 are these false Christs, he says. See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come into my, my name saying, I am he, and he will mislead many. And speaking of the future end, Jesus immediately says, first of all, beware that there will be many people that will show up before I come again. Many people that will show up on the scene and will say, I'm Jesus. I am he. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And Jesus says these false messengers will, in fact, successfully lead multitudes of people away. Now, we understand this is something that perhaps can speak to a future event, but we must also see historically this is nothing new. For the early church immediately saw these people. You can read of it for yourself if you look over to to passages such as Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, there's a reference to these false Christs that immediately made a presence or false teachers that were easily observed by others. In Acts chapter 5, verses 36 and 37, we read of of Theudas claiming to be somebody. A group of 400 men joined up with him. But describing him, we, we hear, but he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census, drew away some people after him. He too, was, he too perished and all those who followed him were scattered. We understand very early on there were other leaders that rose up. And whether they claimed to be Jesus Christ himself or simply spoke as if they had his authority, they qualify as these false messengers. And we understand the same people still exist today, don't they? You can think famously to a variety of cults that come up once in a while. As a child who grew up in Texas, I remember very clearly David Koresh of the Branch Davidians back in the 90s in Waco, Texas. Perhaps some of you can remember him. Claimed to be Jesus Christ, huge cult following. Um, Many of them died in a fire that started in their compound. There are a variety of other cults around the world in which the leader claims to be Christ. And at times, perhaps the person is that obvious, that blatant. But it's clear also there are many others who are not that obviously nuts, I guess I would say. There are many other much more deceptive false teachers that rise up. Many more other people that that speak far more eloquently and perhaps less violently. These are those people we would qualify as false teachers. People who lead away multitudes. who who speak of the Bible, who speak of Jesus and claim to speak on Jesus' behalf, but who actually speak of of nothing. They're empty wells. 
They offer no hope. They offer no gospel. And tragically, those who are unaware follow after their teachings. And history is replete with these false teachers. This is why throughout the New Testament there are endless warnings concerning these false teachers because they are, in fact, a threat. But as Jesus says, this is just part of the fallen world. These are part of the birth pangs. As you move forward, you see other birth pangs referenced by Jesus Christ in verse 7 and 8. He says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end, for nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, also famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Jesus then speaks also, not simply of false teachers, but he speaks of these wars and rumors of wars. He speaks of mass destruction. Again, this is something that is still yet to come, but we understand from a historical standpoint, this is nothing new, for we live in a world that is full of wars. Again, put yourself back in the shoes of the original audience of the Gospel of Mark. In the year AD 66, the Jewish-Roman War kicked off. And eventually, after four years of fighting, the Roman military leader Titus was sent to Jerusalem. They lay siege to the city of Jerusalem, And after one week battle, they destroyed it. They brought the temple down. They burned everything. They looted. They slaughtered. It was mass chaos. As a believer in those times, it would have been easy perhaps to assume, okay, this this has got to be the end. Surely, surely this is the war to end all wars. But we understand world history was just ramping up, wasn't it? For as we study history of, of any given nation, In any given geographical region, we see war after war after war after war. And with each war, the the common thought is it could not possibly get worse than this. Right? World War I was the war to end all wars. And then what happened? World War II. Quickly put that thought to rest. No, it it, it can get worse. Because mankind is, is inherently wicked. And so there will be wars and rumors of wars as there has been, as there continues to be today, for we of course, live in the midst of those same concerns today. You turn on the news on any given day, and and apparently there's a new threat, whether it's Iran or Iraq or Syria or North Korea or whatever it is, there is always a threat looming around the, the corner, isn't there? There's always that concern of war, and as believers, it's easy to look at all these threats and say, that's the end. That's gotta be it. It can't get worse than this. But again, Jesus says, no. These are merely the birth pangs. There will be destruction. The same way there will be these natural disasters that rise up. There will be these things that cause, at least for a temporary time period, mass chaos, lives lost. But again, this is just the beginning. These are things that happen in a fallen world. These are things that point to the fact that things are, in fact, falling apart and pointing ahead towards that future judgment. Attached to that second birth pang, there is the third category that's referenced in verses 9 through 13, this this category of persecution. And this is a very real struggle and has always been for all believers. But again, it's, it's nothing new to us today. For Jesus promised to his disciples already, the world will hate you. The world will kill you. And Jesus was good to his word on that, was he not? It did not take long for the apostles to be executed. Again, by the time most believers would have read the Gospel of Mark, they would have likely heard of the execution of Paul and Peter already. Shortly after that, you have other apostles arrested and executed. 
The early believers themselves faced mass-scale persecution. The book of 1 Peter references this persecution time and time again and describes those fiery trials that you are enduring. Peter describes the difficulties of living under a harsh Roman government that clearly is set against you, and, and he speaks of the fact that the persecution is there, that suffering is there, but it ought not to surprise us because this is what Jesus promised. And while we here in Cape Girardeau do not experience that level of persecution, if you stay aware of what's going on worldwide, you understand that the persecution isn't getting any weaker worldwide. In fact, the most recent reports suggest it's worse now than it ever has been before in the history of the church, as hard as that is to believe. But you look at different countries throughout the Middle East, and, and researchers suggest that it's nearing genocide levels of persecution. Genocide levels. You study reports coming out of Nigeria, and you can find numerous reports, numerous stories of Boko Haram and other, other militias gathering up arms and seeking out Christian villages and just slaughtering them all. They do so because of the faith. They do so because they despise Christians. This level of persecution can be seen in other countries. North Korea, of course, is famous for this. But this persecution is found everywhere. And again, by the grace of God, while we do not experience that physical retribution here, we certainly can feel perhaps some of that tide turning against us in our own culture. Where we are increasingly seen as bigots, as fools. We are increasingly seen as people that are opposed to that which is loving, that which is good. And so it is by no means a stretch of the imagination to see how that tide could continue to turn against us to where we are seen as if we are bad citizens because of our Christianity, in the same way that the earliest of Christians were seen as against Rome. They were viewed as poor citizens because of their Christian faith and how it contradicted the basic beliefs of that culture, of that system. Again, in response to this persecution, it is easy to think, okay, well, this is it. Surely things could not get worse than this. You look at the, the persecution in the Middle East, surely it could not get worse than that. But again... As we read these words of Jesus, we understand this is exactly what was promised. For he says, they will deliver you over. You will speak before others. You will be put to death for your faith. The disciples understood this firsthand. They experienced it. The early church experienced it firsthand. They saw it. We continue to see it today, and we will continue to experience it. And while it is easy to assume that this must be the end, we must understand that it is also very likely still part of the birth pangs, or at least it is included in the birth pangs. Jesus uses this language of birth pangs to, to speak of the fact that our current times are difficult. These things are painful. It's not to, to minimize your suffering for it. It is real suffering. But that current struggle points forward to a greater reality, a greater future. It points forward to the delivery, in essence. Paul uses similar language to describe just universal ongoing suffering in creation. In Romans chapter 8, Paul picks up on that same terminology in describing the fall and future glory. In Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 19, we read, The anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was cause of him who for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hopes that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Jesus speaks of our present suffering, our present struggle, in the same way that Paul speaks of the present struggle of all creation. It is difficult. It is hard to get through at times. But again, it is not necessarily a sign of the end. It is simply here to get us ready. It is the already present apocalypse. And yet as Jesus continues to speak of that future destruction, speak of that apocalyptic sight, we understand that there are still elements in these verses, and particularly in the verses we'll get to next week, that aren't quite yet here. There is still clearly a future element to Jesus' answer. And in that future element, that future delivery, there are still those similar events. That is to say, there are still, ma- there are still massive um, points of destruction. There are still wars. There are still rumors of wars. There is still persecution. But it appears to be ramped up. You can read of this sort of prediction in other passages, such as Revelation 6, where the Apostle John is given a vision of the seven seals being broken. And in those seals and in the words of Jesus Christ here, there's a reference to suffering that isn't just limited, say, to Jerusalem. It's not just limited to the destruction of the temple. It's, it's spread out. It is a worldwide level of persecution. It's a worldwide level of suffering. A level that has not yet been touched, at least in the days that Jesus Christ is speaking of. And so Jesus does speak of this future reality when hatred for believers will continue to be raised. When, as we see in verses 11 through 13, persecution will not just come from the outside, but it will come from within your own family. And we read it goes to the extent of of children putting their own parents to death. I don't have a perfect relationship with my kids, but I don't think I'm quite there yet, thankfully. This is the reality that Jesus speaks of in the future. A ramped up persecution, ramped up suffering. This is the great tribulation that other passages speak of, this time in which persecution and suffering reaches really a a climax, an all-time high, and Jesus says we must be prepared for that future suffering just as we're prepared for now. Now, as we continue to go further into the text and get, say, into verse 14, Jesus will speak more to the signs that, that accompany that future suffering, that future tribulation. And then oftentimes, when When we as believers read this text in Mark 13, it's easy in essence to jump ahead to that future reality. And oftentimes you'll hear Christians approach this text as if again it's some mysterious puzzle that Jesus wants us to try to put together and argue about, okay, when exactly does this happen? And who exactly is that? And while that comes into play partially, I do not want us to miss really the the primary point of Jesus in this passage. Because you have to remember the disciples are not asking some vague future far off, they're not speaking of some vague far off event. Nor does Jesus speak in vague terms. Rather, the disciples are asking about very specific destruction and Jesus in his response gives a very practical set of instructions. And so while it is helpful to try to consider what lies in the future, and again we'll speak to that later, it is also or it is, first of all, important for us to appreciate the constant call in light of Jesus' answer. Because this really is the primary focus of Jesus. 
listen again to the words of Jesus in verses 5 through 13 and, and hear all of the commands that Jesus gives in response to the, the coming destruction. Beginning in verse 5, we see, we read, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come into my name saying, I am he, will, he will mislead you, many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not the end. For a nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, also famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pains. But now be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts. You will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony. The gospel must first be preached to all nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in the hour, for it is not you who speaks, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, father is child, children will raise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all by name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. As believers, it is tempting to respond to any apocalyptic vision, to respond to any point regarding future destruction and just kind of be petrified or frozen in fear. But that's not the instruction that God gives us. Rather, in the time we have left, I want us to see a few basic points of application so that when we hear that the end is coming, we might understand how that end applies to us now. Regardless of how distant the event is, there are daily practical implications that come into play for every single one of us who are Christians. There's a number of them that we could take from this text, but the first, and perhaps most important, is the reminder that, that we must trust God. Right? In response to the promised destruction, it would have been easy for the disciples to be overwhelmed with fear and petrified. But there's no fear-mongering of Jesus in this text. Jesus isn't trying to scare us or startle us. Jesus is simply laying out what will happen, what it is we will see. And as we hear these words of Christ, then, it is vitally important to remember that, that God is the one who is sovereign. That God is the one who is executing his plan perfectly. It is important to remember that as chaotic as, as our world events look now, nothing has gone off the rails. Everything, everything is going according to plan. And we can know that because God is, sits enthroned. God is sovereign. His plan is being executed. And you can see that at various points within our text. Within this discussion of, of persecution and being put on trial, we have this little mention in verse 10 that the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And so we see, even in the midst of great persecution, Jesus says, there's a point to that. The gospel's going to be preached. You're going to be my witnesses. I'm going to put you in the places you need to be so that the gospel might be presented in the way I want it to be presented. Not only that, but as you consider elsewhere in this text, we understand that in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of this chaos, God still has his people under his hand. Again, look at verse 11 of Mark 13. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but it is the Holy Spirit. So very frequently when I was a child and I would, I would hear messages on the apocalypse, when I would hear messages of coming tribulation, I would get so worked up with anxiety thinking, am I going to be able to stand strong? Will I be able to stay true to the gospel? I, I don't know what I'm going to say. I, I don't know if I'm going to be a good believer in that moment. And in, in essence, these promises just made me feel entirely inadequate for the calling. But again, that's not the point. 
For we understand God will keep us. This is what the Holy Spirit is here for. He indwells us. He, he reminds us of the word of God. He reminds us of our calling. And we're told even in these significant circumstances that he speaks on our behalf. That he will bring these words to mind. And so regardless of how terrifying some of these details might be, the immediate response is to trust God. And so the question is, do we trust him? Do we really believe his word? Do we believe that he will continue to keep us? Furthermore, as we consider the other words of Jesus Christ, we understand the secondary calling to remain vigilant in all things. Time and time again in this text, Jesus says, stay alert. Keep your eyes open to your surrounding circumstances. And you see this play out in a number of ways in, in chapter 13. You see this vigilance play out in our response to false teachers. And so as we're vigilant, we must know the truth. We must be the type of believers that can hear a false teacher and understand very quickly, okay, that, that's wrong. We must be the type of believers that when we hear this, this new preacher discover some unheard of interpretation of the text, we can be wise enough to say, I don't, I don't think that's right. I think there's a reason why all believers have always interpreted this way. We have to remember the words of Hebrews 13 that tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and to not be taken captive by these strange new doctrines. And so we remain vigilant by knowing that truth, resisting false teachers. We must remain vigilant, and this also requires us to, to really count the cost of following him. This is part of our vigilance. This is part of us staying alert. Again, this is nothing new. Jesus Christ makes it clear throughout the Gospels that the world will hate us, that we will be persecuted, we will be tried as a result of our faith. And we must not take that lightly. We must understand that there is a significant cost to following Jesus Christ. We must be aware of that, and as such, not be shocked when the world does in fact turn against us. As a freshman in college, I went in, of course, being told all the time how foolish I looked in the eyes of my peers and how foolish the gospel was, but I assumed, oh, well, I'm smart, and so I'll be able to impress people, and I'll be able to make the gospel sound really intelligent, and, and people won't, won't judge me for that. And I was horrified then, the first time a, a teacher after class told me how ignorant I sounded by quoting the Bible in class, and he let me know people don't really believe that once you get to a certain point in life. And I felt so belittled and so childish and so ashamed. And I was so shocked. Because I thought, well, I thought as long as you really stick to your convictions that the world respects you and it appreciates you, but that's just not true. We are fools in the eyes of the world. The gospel's utter folly and stupidity in the eyes of the world. And we must remember that. And that comes then with a cost. If we stand for a crucified Messiah, although we know him to be resurrected, we ourselves demonstrate to the world at least that we are fools so understand that cost at the same time in our vigilance it's important to know our calling jesus again in passing references the fact that in our persecution we will be put on trial we will be handed over to judges to kings to others but in the midst of that again there's this reference to the fact that the gospel must be presented and and what does that mean well, if nothing else, it, it is a reminder of the fact that this is our calling. We are there to speak the gospel. As believers, when we hear of this destruction or when we hear of persecution, it is easy to run away from the world and hide ourselves out, 
hold ourselves up in a, in a church, keep ourselves hold up in our house, and act as if we are utterly terrified of the world around us. That is not your calling. Our calling is to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, the end is coming. Yes, we will be persecuted. But no, that does not change your daily expectations from God. We are placed here on this earth to speak the gospel. We are put on this earth, yes, to warn people of the coming destruction, but also lovingly invite them to believe in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are not fear mongers. We do not walk through this life terrified of every sound we hear in the distance as if the apocalypse is waiting under every rock. But we confidently know our basic calling is to trust God. It is to stay vigilant. It is to preach the gospel day in and day out. In the midst of this, of course, remaining vigilant also carries on the importance of knowing the signs, being observant, observant of the world, being observant of, of the fact that there are wars, being observant of the fact that this world is difficult, being observant of the things that Jesus Christ tells us to be observant of. This again speaks to our calling daily to understand Scripture and to take seriously the words of Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters of Christ, are we living our lives in a vigilant manner? Are we alert at all times or are we sleepwalking through our daily schedules, seeing only that which lies immediately before us, failing to understand there is a much greater narrative playing out and understanding that we play a very important part in that narrative? Are we alert? And all these things attached to that, of course, the third and final point of application that Jesus speaks of time and time again is the call to also remain calm. Throughout this text, there is this reminder to, to not freak out over all of these signs. When you hear of these wars and rumors of the wars, stay calm. When you're being persecuted, stay calm. When all of this destruction seems to be ramping up, stay calm, believers. And this is perhaps the most important point of application that I think is so oftentimes forgotten by us in the church. I think of, of when Jamie and I first found out we were pregnant, or Jamie was pregnant, I guess I should say. I can't, can't claim I was pregnant. When we first found out that, that we were expecting our first child, I remember hearing some friends say, does it ever worry you to think about the, the type of world you're bringing a child into? And at the time, I kind of laughed at that response, and I thought, no, like, what a weird thing to say. But now as a father of two young kids, I admit that, that I look at the horizons laying out before my kids, and I'm, I'm really nervous as their parent at times. Because I think, my goodness, what is my six-year-old going to be taught in, in 15 years from now? What is college life going to look like? What, what are her prospects going to look like? What are, what are my daughter's prospects going to look like when it comes to finding a godly young man? Are there going to be any left at that point in time? And honestly, you think of these things. For my son, it's the same thing. We, we can think of the future as parents and we can, we can think, oh my goodness, I, I just don't know how my child's going to make it. And we can get so anxious as parents thinking of the future. But, but again, we're told to remain calm. This is all part of the system. And, and just as God is sovereign in our own lives, he's sovereign in the lives of our children. And so as parents, we are to remain calm. As, as young people, perhaps you can look at culture around you and think that, that things seem to be going to hell in a handbasket, to use a phrase that I was raised on. And it's easy to get nervous. It's easy to think, oh my goodness, are there going to be any jobs left? Is the economy going to crash? Will this political division continue on? Will, will there be a future for me? In light of these other promises of destruction, again, it's easy to get caught off guard. It's easy to become paralyzed in fear. But as young people, too, it's, it's the calling to, to remind yourselves that it will be fine. 
it will work out for God's glory. This is all a parting to, uh, going according to plan. And just as a church, yet again, I, I mentioned this earlier, it is so easy again to, to spend time with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and to, to look at the world around us and to speak how horrible everything is. And we, we talk about the American church as if it's the worst in church history, as if the gospel's been totally lost, as if we at Cape Bible Chapel are the only people that, that are really saved, right? It's easy to, to think along these terms. It's easy to look around us and again, just assume the end is nigh and in response, we become apathetic and we assume there's nothing we can do about it. We assume that, that fear is the proper response and so we join in with those daily news headlines and we cry out with everyone else, the sky is falling, the end is here, what are we to do about it? And yet as believers, again, we are told, remain calm, even in the midst of the worst case of destruction, even when things get ramped up here in Mark 13, even when that apocalypse comes, we know that Jesus sits enthroned. We know how it all plays out. We know that even if every single thing we love is crushed in this world, if every home that we've ever lived in is burned to the ground, that the end glory is still promised. That that is still the end of the story. And so as believers, as we consider all of these words of Jesus, it's important, again, to be reminded of, of this genuine question that ought to loom large in all of our hearts. Every single one of us as believers ought to be asking regularly, when Jesus? Every single one of us as believers ought to be praying that prayer of David in the Psalms, ought to be praying the prayer in Revelation and say, amen, Lord Jesus, please come quickly. Please, Christ, return. And so it's important to dwell on this text it's important to dwell on the future and to grow in our appreciation of the question but as we become anxious with that question as we cry out to God let us also remember the practical words of Jesus here in Mark 13 and let us in turn respond by trusting God at all times let us respond by remaining vigilant and remaining calm and let us respond by simply carrying on with the life that we've all been called to live knowing that those of us who persevere, those of us who are kept by God, will in fact be delivered into glory. As we continue in the text next week, we'll discuss more of the signs that Jesus provides, but for the time being, let us dwell on this daily calling that is always present. Let us not become obsessed with the details that we might not know for certain, rather, let us meditate daily on the calling that is made clear to us, and let us make sure that we are carrying out those words of Christ. That being said, let me close us in prayer. Father in heaven, Again, we thank you for our time this morning, God. Uh, God, I confess, as we come to texts like this, it, it's easy to become perhaps obsessed with those details that we do not know for sure. It's easy to, to become obsessed with those future events that still lie ahead and miss the focus of the text before us, God. We thank you for the fact, God, that, that you give us a clear calling. We thank you for the fact, God, that the future is clear even if we might not know all of the details, God. As we consider the words of Jesus here, it is easy to become anxious and easy to be anxious not just in light of the words of Christ but in, in light of the world in which we live, God. In response, it is easy to become paralyzed by our own fear, uncertain of what it is you would have, have us do. And yet, God, as we consider the words of your Son today, Lord, might we be reminded of the fact that you are sovereign might we respond by trusting you? 
God, might we respond by, vigilant, by, by being vigilant and staying alert, by being vigilant and, and knowing your words so that we can be aware of false teachers, being vigilant and knowing the signs that you lay out for us, God. In our vigilance, Lord, might we then not lose sight of our daily calling. Might we be the ambassadors you've called us to be. Might we remain calm. Might we daily be the gospel preachers that you call us to be, Lord. And in all these things, God, might we not look ahead to the future with trepidation, with fear, but with confidence, knowing, God, that we are on the winning side of history in the end, God. Knowing that even if we cannot grasp exactly when that happens, Father, the end is certain, Father. And so, God, as we sang earlier, though we see and hear creation groaning all around us, and though we ourselves groan for that end, God, might we remind ourselves and remind each other daily that the new creation is coming and is in fact here now, God. Let us rejoice in that fact and let us look with great anticipation to the day of your son's return. Jesus, we pray that return is today. But as we wait for it, Lord, give us the ability to live lives pleasing to you, God. And save those of us who are here who do not yet know you, God. We praise you, God, and we love you. All in your precious son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen.